together in the roller coaster ride of life. Just in the first half hour today, you can feel all those different emotions of being human in a world that is racked by sin. So we're getting answers in all these different places of how we can engage the living God. Last week, it was dark. It was low. Justin threw from the pulpit. He preached about what it's like to pray at midnight with no stars at the bottom of a well that is very dry. Long time since you've been with God's people. Very far away from God's city. And God feels like he has completely forgotten you. How do you pray in that place? Today, we're taking this roller coaster ride back up together. And we're learning how to pray, not at midnight, in exile, at the bottom of a well, with nobody around, and God far away. That's a place you need to know how to pray. But you also need how to know how to pray where I'm taking you guys today. At noonday, surrounded by God's people, in the heart of God's city, with God's presence literally two feet from you. How do you pray in that kind of a place? How are you called to respond to God when you are at the height of the roller coaster? All right, verse 5 of our text set that stage for us. This is what it said. It said, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Strange verse in there. What is that thing talking about? God has gone up? What does that mean? All right, the only other place in your Bible that you're going to find that kind of a phrase, God going up, loud shout, sound of a trumpet, is in the book of Samuel. And in that text, Older Covenant, God had just given King David and his people a great victory in a battle. And they all were taking the ark of God's presence, the ark of the covenant, right? Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know that thing at the end? So they stole that from the scriptures. The ark represented God's presence, tangible among his people. They won this battle. They were coming up from the battlefield. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, was perched at the top of a hill. They were coming up the hill into the city, victorious because of God's grace. This is how 2 Samuel describes that psalm. David went out and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed, where it was, into the city of David, Jerusalem, with rejoicing. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You hear that? The ark of the Lord up with shouting and the sound of a horn. Okay, that is the kind of scene, the kind of place that I'm taking you guys today. Uh, and they're in great condition. And I was like, what are these doing up in the attic? Grace said, look at them. That's what they're doing up in the attic. Do not put those things on. I was supposed to have those on to preach to you today. Uh, I didn't want to embarrass Dave and Kelly in front of their family on their baby's dedication. But this is a psalm where you wear blue suede shoes because it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. 
Uh, go, cat, go. Come on, where's the Elvis fans? Jeez, four to go. All right, good, four to go. This is, when was the last time that you experienced that kind of crazy joy that that, that David's story expresses with a whole group of people? I mean a room full of people applauding, shouting, high fives, chest bumps, forearm shivers, all that stuff. When's the last time you were within a group of people that just had that response to something? Cool in the gang. Celebrate good times. For me, it was last April. A friend of mine got tickets to go to the Red Sox game. We were out in the bleachers, and it was Red Sox-Yankees. So the place was wanting to erupt about something, right? Keep waiting for that fist fight with the goofball and the Yankees hat. But it hadn't happened by the fifth inning. Ellsbury is on, Jacoby Ellsbury is on third base. Andy Pettit, left-handed pitcher, real tall, goes real slow as pitching. He goes into his set position. All of a sudden, Jacoby Ellsbury takes off from third base for a straight steal of home. This never happens. And he is as quick as, as a cat from an Elvis song. And so he dives headfirst into home, and the ball gets there too late. The ump jumps up and goes safe. And 33,000 Red Sox fans at Fenway Park absolutely exploded. You didn't know what to do. You couldn't believe what had just happened. Everybody put down their beers, put down what they were doing. Everybody jumped out of their seats. Everybody was applauding, and they could not stop. I'm talking like two outs and 37 pitches later, and everybody is still like, did that just happen? That just happened. Did, 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 it did win. And they didn't put a replay up because the cameras didn't catch it, and you're, you're trying to convince yourself that something like that just happened. Screaming, yelling, unable to express your enthusiasm and your joy, okay? That's the last time I can remember something crazy like that happening that I was a part of. All right, Seven Mile Road, that is where we are going today. That is the response that Psalm 47 is calling you to today. Only it's not because your eyes have just seen a straight steal of home plate against the Yankees. It's because your eyes have seen God. Hear this short psalm with me one more time. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And hear this part again. Sing praises to God. Sing praises Sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. Okay, let me pray and we'll run through this together. Father, we need eyes that can see you for who we are, and we need to learn together today how to respond to what we see. We long to respond well, to pray well, to engage you right, and today it's the top of the mountain. I pray that we would have hearts that just explode the way that they're supposed to. Come by your spirit. Help us to see. Help us to respond well, I pray. Amen. Okay, will you guys zoom way out with me? Way, way, way out. Zoom way out with me so that we can grab the bigger context of what to do when we come across the text of Scripture like Psalm 47, how this psalm fits into this redemptive history that God is writing. This is a psalm that was originally written and sung by God's older covenant people. In the old covenant, God, in his grace, and actually for the good of all the nations and all the peoples, 
extended redemptive and covenantal love to just one nation and one people. Israel is what the Bible most commonly refers to that nation as. Um, In our text today, it's referred to as Jacob. Jacob's name was also Israel. Jacob was the father of 12 sons who became the nation of Israel, or you could call it Jacob. Now, if you were God and you were intending to save the world this way through the life of one nation, and you were picking which nation would be the one you would do that through, the one that you were going to work for the salvation of the world, Israel would not have been the obvious choice. You know how when you were in sixth grade and it was time for kickball, you did not pick the kid with the glasses and one lens was missing and uh, he was left-footed and he had an I Love Chess t-shirt on and it was tucked way into his pants. So you didn't go for that kid for your kickball team? Um, same thing here. You would not have chosen Israel if you were looking for a nation to lead all the nations to the living God. Israel was wasting away in chains and in, in, in slavery totally dominated by another nation called Egypt. They were helpless, and they were poor, and they were weak, and they were without hope. And yet God chose to redeem Israel and to establish Israel and to give Israel his law and to make Israel the light of the world. What's the lesson that we see in the Older Covenant? It follows right through to you and me. God chooses a weak and a needy and a humble people who are willing to respond in faith to his promises and obedience to his law, and they become his covenant people. Okay, now part of that covenant relationship with this nation of Israel was that they needed somewhere to live, right? They were in slavery. They didn't have a land. And so God said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a place where you can build your houses, tend your fields, and your flocks, raise your children, love God, obey his law, live justly, worship him rightly. You need a good place to be the light of the world. Now, one of the many problems with that big, great plan of God is that there was already people living in that land. So, you know, when you're house hunting or apartment hunting and you go, that would be awesome. That's the greatest house. Oh, man, somebody's already living there. I can't just go ring on the bell and say, out. I'm moving in. That's what was going on with God's people. There was a land, and that land was filled with other nations. And they were big, they were strong, they were well-armed, they were well-fortified, big walls, very ugly soldiers. These were nations that you did not mess with. And not only were they big, but they were bad. And I don't mean bad like Michael Jackson, bad means cool bad. I mean bad, like morally bad. Uh, God had allowed these nations to live in this land for hundreds and hundreds of years, enjoying this beautiful place. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, all these nations and their leaders did was sin and sin and sin. Their wickedness, when you read about it, was just breathtaking. Their idolatries, their injustice, their immorality, their oppression of the poor and the weak, their absolute disdain for God. And so finally, after centuries of patience, God says, enough. I am taking this good land from you, and I am giving it to others who have responded in faith and obedience to me. The book of Joshua in your Bible tells that very fascinating story 
of the older covenant people's conquest of the land of Canaan. It's just amazing. They show up with pea shooters and Nerf guns and water pistols. And they're going up against giants with M60s and rocket launchers. And somehow, this weak, small people wins victory after victory in the land. That story of God being with his people, making them a great nation, and giving them a land, sits in the background and sits beneath Psalm 47. That's what he's referring to when he said these words that we've heard. The Lord subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Can you hear it in there? They are rejoicing, clapping, shouting, singing, dancing, because God has given them victory over really strong and really sinful nations. Okay, now big question. When God acted like that in the older covenant, in the Joshua conquest, in that story I started with about David winning that great battle, in all these times when he fought for his people, when God subdued very strong, very sinful nations under Israel, what two things was God revealing for the world to see about his character, about his nature? I need you guys to see these with me. Okay, one is this. He was revealing for the whole world to see, everybody, his utter sovereignty over all the nations of the world. He was making it known to everybody that he, Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses and walked his people out of Egypt and given them the sweet land, he was much stronger than all the other so-called gods, to the degree that all these other gods that we read about were not really gods at all. There was only one who could be called God. Now, that monotheism was radical at the time. That was very different theology hundreds, thousands of years ago. Um, That was not how people thought about gods in those days, right? There were many, many, many gods, and they were very tribal, And they all had their place and their people that they were the God over. So Egypt was over here, and it had its gods. Philistia was over here. They had their gods. Assyria might be up here. They had their gods. And those gods reigned over those nations in those locales. Um, Once you passed go, you would get your $2, and then you would be under the purview of a different god or set of gods. This is like sports teams in the United States. Uh, Grace used to work for America West Airlines, so we would just fly anywhere for a weekend, see the city, and enjoy uh, our time together. Every time you land at the airport, and they have that place where, you know, tuna fish sandwiches are like $16. Do you know what the price of a tuna fish sandwich is everywhere else in the world? How did it become $16 in here? And they had all that clothes that was really overpriced because you had to get a gift on your way out of the town. Well, you show up, and every town has all these T-shirts, but it's their local gods, their local sports team. So you get to Phoenix, and it's a big display of the Diamondbacks and the Coyotes and the Suns. Um, You get to uh, New York, and it's the Yankees, and then there's like 10 Mets shirts. Um, We went to Columbus one time, and I swear to you, they got soccer T-shirts up, and I'm like, who is buying a Columbus soccer T-shirt? That is a pitiful God right there. Uh, That's what they thought it was like. Local gods, everybody's got their own. When you're in our place, you play by his rules. 
Israel's existence shouted to the world, no, that is not how this works. The universe-creating, earth-governing, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he alone is God. That idea jumps right off the pages of Psalm 47, right? Get back there and reflect on it this week. Verse 2, for Yahweh, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over this whole earth. Verse 7, for God is the king over all the earth. Verse 8, for God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And I love this one, verse 9, the shields of the earth belong to the Lord. When you hear the shields of the earth, that means the, the great leaders, the great strength, everything that the nation is counting on and is about, all of their defenses. God owns every shield of every people and every tribe. He alone is God. Over and over in redemptive history, God proved that idea to be true. I alone am the one to be worshipped, to be known as God. I reign over all peoples, all nations, all kings, all tribes, all tongues, all of it. We call that the sovereignty of God. Second thing that God was revealing in this covenant life of his people, overcoming other nations, was not just that he was sovereign, but that this one who was strong and sovereign was serious about holiness and righteousness and justice. That he, this God who reigned over the earth, was dead serious about right and wrong, was, was serious about sin and that he holds people and he holds nations accountable. He holds them accountable. When you see God acting against people or against nations in the older covenant, and he often does this against his own people, so he is not arbitrarily playing favorites and waking up and saying, ah, I want to get rid of that nation today, or I don't like those people over there. No, this is not an arbitrary, selfish, moody kind of a God. It is God's announcement to the earth that I take sin seriously and I execute justice in my world. Maybe not right away, but eventually justice will be done. The nations that God took down in these stories, the Bible calls them Canaanites because they were living in the land of Canaan that Israel would eventually live in. They thought that they could act however they wanted, do whatever they wanted. They could oppress people. They could take people as slaves. They could dominate people. They could kill off the poor, the weak, the needy. They could act however they wanted because their gods were good with it. But God's activity through Israel, his victories in their life, was saying to the world, no, that is not how this world works. There is a God above the nations, a king above the kings, and he is blazingly holy, and he demands holiness from his subjects, and he will act against the wicked on behalf of the righteous. He will make sure that sin is punished, and goodness and holiness is rewarded, and that is especially good news for the majority of people who did not find themselves in places of earthly power. What do we call that? We call that the justice of God. So sitting behind this psalm, took me a little while to set that context for you, 
is this reality. There is a God, and that God is sovereign, and he is holy. And that brings us to the question of the day. How do you respond when your eyes come to see that God for who he is? When you realize that there is one who utterly reigns and is utterly good. Psalm 47's answer to that question is this. You rejoice. You explode with joy because that is really good news. Okay, let me set two examples and then we'll let the text speak for itself at the end. Two ways that I want you to see this. Even more helpful than the Jacoby Ellsbury story, but that's kind of the tone. Do you remember when you were younger and at some point in the spring or the summer, you would find out who your teachers were going to be the next year? So I don't know, without elementary school, middle school, high school, you would get this thing in the mail and they would say, here's your homeroom teacher, here's your physics teacher, here's your English teacher. Okay. When you got that thing in the mail and it was a teacher who was just pathetic and lazy and they didn't know their stuff and their classroom was a mess and they played favorites or just for some reason everybody knew this person wasn't competent and their heart wasn't in it, what would happen to your soul and your emotions when you saw their name that that was your teacher? Oh, your shoulders would drop. You would be like, no, come on. Why does my last name start with K? No. You'd start searching on the internet to find out how homeschooling exactly worked because you're like, I can pull that off by myself, please. That was the feeling when the person in charge was just lousy, incompetent, unjust. Oh, no, I have to sit under their leadership in this class. But what was your response when you got somebody who just had a great reputation? They worked hard. They were in charge of that class. They were totally fair, played no favorites, loved their subject, did what was right, and you knew one year with them, you were coming out with a great grasp of that subject and a great experience. In other words, what would you do when they said, Katie Simonson is teaching you literature next year? How would you respond? Oh, God, Katie. No, you would, you would be giving people high fives. You would be hugging people in the hallways. Did you get Mrs. Simonson? Yeah, Mrs. Simonson. Yeah, this is so great. Why were you so excited? Because you knew that it was good news for you that that was your teacher. You feeling that? All right, another example that I need you to get, and then we'll go to the text. Um, all of our pastors in the life of this church are tent makers. That means we have day jobs, and then we pass to you guys with all the remaining energy and time that we have. My day job happens to be in uh, school finance. And so the one thing that you can't do in school finance is steal money, right? Because it's taxpayer dollars, and that would be bad. First thing on the resume, I don't steal money. So every couple of years, I have to go to a fraud class all day long where they teach us all the new tricks that people use to steal money and how to make sure you don't play those games and you're aware of someone else in your uh, place where you're working is playing those games. Well, usually those classes are just, you know, accounting, boring, detail. But this year they told a great story that I find helpful for this, for the scripture. Um, there was this school district and the upper administration every year would very conveniently take themselves to a professional development conference for a week that just happened to be in February, 
and just happened to be in Key West, Florida, the great hub of educational minds in this country, right? And the, the four or five or six of them who were in cahoots would get their flight, their housing, their food, their activities all paid for, like a fourteen dollars or $15,000 bill every single year. And uh, the people who worked for them without power were getting so frustrated by this behavior because they were just clerks, but they knew that this was a scam. And so one of them called the auditors to come in and take a look at this, and so the auditors came in, and they looked at what was happening in this whole professional development conference in Key West thing. And so they showed us all the backup paperwork that exposed what was happening. My favorite was that the syllabus for the professional development included 45 minutes of meetings a day by the poolside, (laughs) sipping drinks with the umbrellas in them. So that was the extent of the work. They were just taking a vacation. Well, uh, the verdict from the auditors came at a public school committee meeting, and the whole clerical staff came to the meeting along with a whole bunch of other people because word had gotten out. And the auditor, you know what an auditor is? So this is a boring, boring person who eats cereal with no sugar. And, okay? Sued on. There's nothing flamboyant or, or, or applause-worthy about an auditor, right? So the auditor gets up in the monotone voice, and he's just telling the story. Um, and he said that, I just said um, the simple verdict of the audit, that this was not right, and this behavior needed to stop. He said, when I said those words, to my great surprise, the room exploded, and the clerical staff jumped out of their seats and just started applauding and cheering and high-fiving each other, chest bumps all throughout the school committee room. He said, I was so surprised by that. Are you guys feeling that emotion? To know that there is an auditor above corrupt bosses who cares for justice and righteousness and has the power and the strength to come in and put a stop to that evil. What was the response of those people when they got a vision of that person existing? Clapping of hands, high fives, joy and rejoicing. That is the response in prayer that Psalm 47 is calling us to when we see God for who he is. When we see that God is sovereign, and that God is holy, it should cause us to explode out of our seats with joy that that's who God is. All right. The text was explicit for you. You can't miss it. Two different stanzas. They both begin with the how to respond. The first one said, clap your hands, shout to God with loud shouts of joy. And the second one said, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise. Now, in your Bible, there's exclamation points all over that paragraph. Okay, our punk Hebrew scholars in this room have told me there's no such thing as exclamation points in Hebrew, Matt. We just put those in there in English. Okay, whatever. You guys speak English. Do you know what an exclamation point means? All right. I I figured that the original writer of this psalm, when they got to this part, they were writing those strange Hebrew letters but they got out a big, fat, black, sharpie marker because they didn't have punctuation in Hebrew, and they said, this is what is going on here. Exclamation points, explosion of joy. Clap your hands. 
Okay, if you don't know it, this is the worst clapping church in the history of churches. There was this article, they lined them all up at number one, Seven Mile Road, Malden, Massachusetts, worst clapping church ever. All right, the good news for you is that this is not so much the clapping of keep a beat on the second and the fourth when the snare drum hits, although that's how you do it if you didn't know it, okay? I'm not going to try and teach you. I've given up. This is more the, the clapping of applause. You see that? That's who God is. God is that strong. God is a God of covenant love. And God is, is for justice and righteousness. See that? Clap your hands, okay? Shout to God with loud shouts of joy. All right, again, very quiet church in here. Some of you guys are just New Englanders, and you just don't do loud unless it's a Red Sox game uh, or a Dunkin' Donuts, you know, half-off price. Then you'll get loud. Um, some of you guys have been to insane churches where screaming was just the norm 92% of the time, and so you're afraid about a verse like this. Um, again, this isn't about screaming and yelling and interrupting corporate worship. It's about when we realize that this is God, and He is strong, and he is for justice. What just happened to my voice? I mean, I get excited quick, but you just can't help it. Yes! Loud shouts of joy are allowed in prayer when you get a vision for who God is. And then, of course, sing, 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 sing. Sam got me going a couple of weeks ago talking about how singing is probably an eternal language because worship was happening with the angels long before man was created. Yeah. God has given us a language for prayer when you get a vision for who he is, and that language is song, because you just got to hit high notes and melodies, and you got to grab somebody, and you got to harmonize, and you got to, but the best way that we can talk is in song, and so what becomes the way that we pray and respond? In, in song, God deserves it. He's that good. I just can't say it. I got to sing this thing. I have to sing it. Give me some music. Give me a band. Because if that's who God is, I got to sing praise. I got to sing praise. I have to sing praise. When you see God for who he is, part of the right response is to applaud and shout and be filled up with joy and sing. Okay, now that's probably not surprising to anybody that the psalm would encourage us to do that. We get that in our human experience. And if God is all that he is, he is the ultimate one that we should be shouting and clapping and singing about. But the last thing I want to point out from this psalm might have been strange to you, a little bit of a twist, maybe a surprise, but we can't miss it today. I, I've told you how to pray and respond with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, with the best language available to you, loud and raucous and joyful. That is appropriate. He is God. But another question that this psalm raises is, who? Who is supposed to respond to the fact that Israel's God is God? Who is supposed to shout and clap and dance and sing? Who is called to that response? Well, obviously, your immediate answer is Israel should be really excited that Israel's God is the one who is God. In other words, God's covenant people should respond this way. The, the first stanza is all about there that God is king of all the earth. He subdued peoples under us, nations under our feet. He's chosen a heritage for us, Jacob, the one that he loves. He has given us a good land. He has given us his word. He has saved us and redeemed us and blessed us. Of course, it's appropriate for believers, 
for God's people to respond raucously to the announcement that their God is God. But, but, this psalm refuses to stop there. This psalm has this other thing going on that I need you to catch a vision for at the end. There is a refrain in this psalm that broadens the call way beyond one people and one nation and calls for all peoples and all nations to respond like that. Now, this is strange because the dudes with the Yankee hats at the Red Sox game did not go nuts when Jacoby Ellsbury stole home plate, right? Red Sox fans rejoice. Yankee pathetic fans cry. That's what happens. But this psalm is saying all people, all nations, all tribes are supposed to be psyched and raucous that Israel's God is God. We heard this most clearly at the end. This is beautiful verses. This God reigns over the nations. This God sits on the holy throne. The princes of all the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. The shields of all the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. That, that verse 9 should just take your breath away. Um, when you hear of the God of Abraham, it should trigger in your mind a missional understanding of the gospel that the God who chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did so not just for their good, but for the good of many nations. Abraham, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. And many, all nations will be blessed because of you. This psalm is driving us back to that vision of worship across the globe. This isn't just a tribal call to praise. This isn't just for one religion, one nation, one group of people. This psalm insists that the fact that God, the God of Israel, the covenant-keeping God of that people is the one who is God is something that all nations should rejoice at, all peoples. Now, of course, of course the wicked don't rejoice at that. Those who have great power and use that power to oppress people don't rejoice at that. But people from every nation and every tribe who want to have a heart after the living God, who want to reflect his glory, who want to live in a place where sin is not allowed, it is great news for all people that this is who God is. Bad news for those who would want to be God, but unbelievable news that there's one God, that he reigns over all the nations, that he is perfectly holy and just, and he extends covenant love to all who would repent and believe in who he is. Now, the application of this psalm is really clear and really simple. The first question is this. Is there anything inside of you sitting inside this room right now today where God has you that sees the reality of the God of the gospel, that sees the reality of the grace of God, that sees the reality of the covenantal love of God with applause and loud shouts and songs of praise? It's drive grace crazy because I try to do my devotions early in the morning. It's like 6.15 and there's this knucklehead just clapping down in the basement. 
and like making this noise. Yes, this is who God is. Yes. Is there anything in your soul that responds like that? If not, you're not seeing clearly. You're not seeing God for who he has called, who he has revealed himself to be. Do you understand what it means for God in covenant love to prepare a heritage for you? To be so holy and so loving that he puts forth his son to die in your place so that your sins could be forgiven and that you could receive his blessing and his presence and his grace and his light and his love. For God to come to weak, helpless, poor people who were in slavery to sin and say, I'm going to set you free. My son is going to die for you. I'm going to give you eternal life. Man, if there's not something in your soul that wants to jump up right now and applaud that and shout a little bit, and when are we going to sing? Sit down, Matt. When are we going to sing? Then you need to check your heart. You need to begin to reflect on who this God is. You need to continue to take a good look at what it means for God to be the king of all the earth, to be the one who is fiercely holy and just, strong and good and for you. That should cause an explosion in your soul at different times. And the second question that I have for you is this. Is there anything in you that longs for that for your neighbor? See, way too often Christians want to just have their little happy Jesus party all by themselves in their little church four walls. But this psalm makes me want to announce to the world the great news that this is who God is that this is good news for the nations, that the people of every language and every tribe, if they could see that this is who God is, the whole world would shake on its axis because of the applause and the laughter and the joy and the singing. Sometimes when I pray and I just find myself saying, God, reveal yourself in Iraq. Reveal yourself in India. Reveal yourself in China. Reveal yourself in Peru. Reveal yourself in Puerto Rico, in Canada, in Argentina, in Russia. This is great news for all peoples that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the gospel, is alive and he's good and he's pulling for those who will respond in faith and repentance and love him. Do our hearts long for that, for this nation that God has called us to, this, this people, this tribe, we call them the 021s, just north of Boston. Is there anything in your prayer and anything in your life that just longs for these streets, these cities, these homes to join the singing and the applauding and the standing and the shouting because they have gotten a vision for the God of the gospel? Man, I can see that. I can see our church bigger. I can see our church multiplied out and more and more people coming, like, like, like it says, the peoples coming as, as the people of the God of Abraham to stand before him and rejoice. That's the only hope for the nations. That's the only hope for sinners, that God is good, that God is holy, that God has given us the gospel. How can we do anything but respond with raucous joy and applause in our hearts? Let's pray together. God, we shout about so much junk, so much fleeting garbage 
We applaud frail, fragile, selfish, sinful human beings over and over and over again. We need you to lift our chins and lift our eyes to see you for who you are, the king of all these kings, the one who is for the poor and the needy and the weak and the marginalized, the one who will not allow nations to stand in disobedience and in sin. I pray that Seven Mile Road would respond like the kid who found out they got the great teacher, like the clerical team who found out that there is an auditor who is strong and right and just because we have a God who is sovereign and he is holy and he has chosen for us a fabulous heritage, membership in his body, oneness with his son, life eternal, I pray that something in our hearts would stand and clap and applaud and be really glad about that. Without your gift to take our blinders off, to see you, it won't happen. So in the hearts of everybody within earshot of me, cause us to see you for who you are and to respond rightly. And not just us, but all peoples, I pray. Amen. This is our feast. This is our meal together. We come down.